Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. God, we thank you for your goodness, Lord. Thank you for laughter and joy in this house. Thank you for joy in our lives, Lord God. Not just because we choose it, like Josh was speaking last week, but because it's a response to the revelation of you. Joy is a fruit of a relationship with you. And God, as we get into the word this morning, I I had a tougher time at the nine o'clock. I told Josh that I couldn't get my thoughts clear. And what we're speaking about deals with such spiritual concepts that are so far above our own language and our vocabulary. So Holy Spirit, I yield this to you. And I ask that you would multiply this word and you would speak in the most profound ways this morning. I ask that you would take the word and you'd make it living. Lord, people ask me sometimes, what does a living word mean? Living word means that there's a flow of God's spirit and anointing that provokes a response in our hearts. It brings things alive. We leave that place saying, I want to find more about Jesus. I want to hunger for him. I want to give my life. I, I desire to serve. There's something of a response. And we pray that through the word this morning, not because of Pastor Michael's giftings or abilities, you put me out of the way, but through the communication of your word, you would bring life. Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I want to start off the year with a message that I've entitled, God, Show Me Your Glory. I think that's a good way to start 2021 with that request. God, show me your glory. And as I was praying and I was wrapping my head around heading into 2021, I was spending time just studying and just some quiet time with the Lord and I was doing that this past week, and God just began to put on me such a heavy burden. It was different from just a Sunday morning preach. That's weighty, but this was different. It was a very specific prayer direction, and it came on so heavy, I just couldn't stop praying. And as I was interceding, I began to feel the heart of God. I began to sense God's heart and his concern over something. As I was finishing up that time of prayer, and I was finishing up that moment of just sensing the Lord and sensing his heart, I began to take a little bit of an inventory from all the sermons that were preached from this pulpit from 2020. I began to look over everything, and I started to realize that the Holy Spirit had one major theme all last year that he just would not let go of, something that he was bringing up time and time again to all of us, almost as if he was warning us, he was preparing us for the years ahead. And the one thing he was bringing up time and time again was the fact that we need to be a people who practice the presence of God, right? We have to be a people that learn not just to minister to each other, although that's extremely important because the Bible says we'll only be known as disciples by the love we have for one another, not just to minister outside the four walls, although that's extremely important because we are to preach the gospel and go to all nations. But before any of that, we have to learn to be a people who minister to God. We minister to his heart. And we do that through prayer. We do that through thanksgiving, through worship. We do that through exercising faith in his promises. We do that through waiting on him patiently. 
according to the scriptures. But before any of that can happen, before we can minister to the heart of God, before we can practice the presence of God, there's one thing that's actually needed first before that. And it was the thing that I was praying for, for all of us. In fact, turn with me to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. I'm going to read verse 18 and 19 in the NIV. And I want you to follow along. And it says this. It says, Who is a God like you, you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. That word delight caught me this last week. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Let me ask you a question this morning. I'm going to put it up on the screen. What is it about our God, Jesus Christ, that makes him different from all the other gods of other religions? What makes our God so different? And Micah chapter 7 actually tells us, and the rest of the word of God bears witness to this, that the, the thing that makes God different, and I want you to get this, is the fact that we serve a God who forgives. We serve a God who pardons sin and transgression and wickedness. And I need you to understand that sin and God's forgiveness, God forgiving it isn't just something that God does. It isn't just an action that he performs. God's forgiveness, are you ready for this, is who he is. It is literally his nature. It is his character. In fact, if you were to go back to the book of Exodus and you were to read a little bit in the life of Moses, Moses made a request of God that I think was one of the most amazing requests of the Old Testament. It happened right after he led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. It happened after he went before Pharaoh and he was used by God as a mouthpiece to declare the ten plagues that were coming. It happened after he saw one of the most brilliant miracles of the Bible, the splitting of the Red Sea, where he literally walked through and God piled the water hundreds of feet high on each side of him. I couldn't imagine what that was like, just looking up and just seeing water everywhere. And after all of that, Moses comes to Mount Sinai, and he's up on Mount Sinai, and he begins to cry out. And what does he cry out for? He says, God, would you give me a revelation of who you are? Not just what you can do but who you are. See, Moses at this point has seen the mighty strength and hand of God. He had seen powerful, powerful miracles. He had seen supernatural provision. But he gets up on that mountain and he says, but would you show me, would you reveal to me your glory? In other words, God, what is it that makes you tick? What is it at your very core? What is it that makes you so majestic, that makes you so beautiful? And God reveals his glory to Moses by declaring to Moses his name, who he is. Look at Exodus chapter 34. Let me read verse 5 to you in the NIV. I want you to see this. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. What was the name of God that was revealed to Moses? What was the name of God that reveals his glory? What name is it that shows how amazing and magnificent and different he is from all the other gods of the universe? 
Well, if you read on in verse 6 and 7, it tells you. Let me show you. And I'm going to read the first half of 7. It says this. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming. This is his name. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Think this all the way through because it's amazing. Out of all the names God could have given to Moses, out of all the names he could have given to describe how amazing and wondrous he truly is, he wanted his children to know him by this name. He wanted them to know that he was a God who pardons and he is a God who forgives. He's saying, Moses, if you want to know what makes me tick, if you want to know what's at my core, if you want to know what it is that I do, is that I, I forgive all transgression, all wickedness, all sin for those who ask for, for those who confess it before me. You asked me to reveal my nature to you, and this is how I want you to know me. That's powerful. Here's the sad truth. Most Christians don't know the God who forgives. Most Christians don't know the God that pardons. We say that we do, but in all reality, we don't. And I know what some of you are even thinking. You're sitting there in that, in that chair, and you're looking at me with those eyes. I say, well, Pastor Michael, isn't that really like the message of the gospel? I mean, isn't that what we're doing here this Sunday? Isn't that what we just sang about? Isn't that what we just declared, that we've been forgiven, that we've been washed, that we've been made clean? I mean, how could you say that? It is the message of the gospel. It is what we declare, but not exactly. See, I think Christians are really good at singing about forgiveness. I think Christians are really good at explaining it doctrinally to each other and other people, especially about the blood of Christ. You could probably do a better job than I can, and I'm your pastor. I think we're really good at extending forgiveness to other believers, telling them that God could wash them clean of whatever they've done in the past and they need to continue on and they need to leave those things and let them go. We do really good proclaiming forgiveness to prostitutes. We do really great proclaiming forgiveness to prison inmates. We go to drug addicts. We'll even talk to gang members who have committed murder and we will say to them, God can forgive you of that. You can leave your shame. You can leave your guilt. You could be utterly and completely washed in his sight and accepted into his family and he will walk with you. He will love you. He will pour blessings out upon you. We proclaim all of that. But many of us in our own hearts have a hard time walking in the joy of forgiveness experientially. We have a hard time living in it every single day in our walks with God. Even though we've sat under years of teaching about the mercy of God. We've sat under years of teaching about the victory of the cross. Years of teaching where we've talked about being adopted as children into the family of God and how we can't earn any of our acceptance, but all of it is by grace and by grace alone. Still in most of us, there's this doubt. There's this unsettling. There's this feeling like God is still displeased with us. And our conscience is in turmoil. 
Why do most Christians feel like this? This is what I'm writing in my notes. Why do most Christians have such a hard time, even after they've repented, even after they've made restitution for some of their sins? Anybody ever felt God tell you to do something and you went and you did it? You paid something back? You said, you know what? I lied about that. Let me do this. You made even restitution. But even after all of that, we walk out of our prayer times, out of our confession, doing and obeying what the Lord asked us to do. And there's this sense inside of our hearts as if God is no longer with us, as if now there's some type of penalty where God is going to withhold something from his hand over our lives because of something that we did and we walk out of it and we question our future we question the calling if God has on our life we question the anointing the life that we once knew because we're wondering is that going to be taken away is that going to be removed from me because of my weakness because of my failure because of my rebellion because of my sin what is it that holds us back and I want you to write this down because this is the answer. I want you to see this. It's our conscience. You know, when God created our conscience, he wired it two ways. There's two specific things that he mandated that it would do. Number one, our conscience always points out sin. It tells us when we stepped over a line and we violated the law of God. And that's actually a good thing. It tells us when we grieve the heart of God. But the second thing that the conscience was always wired to do by God is it was supposed to condemn us. It was supposed to tell us not only did we do something wrong, but we need to pay now for what we've actually done. And anybody who's walked with God any amount of time realizes that this happens, especially when you're a husband or especially when you're a wife and you fail in the marriage or you're a parent and you fail at raising your kids. Parents know this more than anybody when you deal with your conscience or in your singleness when you make a mistake in a relationship where you do something you shouldn't have at your work, at your job, at your school, where you give into a temptation as soon as that happens, there's a thundering that comes into your heart, right? A thundering. And it's an alarm that's telling you, whoa, 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 you did something wrong. That wasn't right. I tell people all the time when I'm trying to find direction for my life, it's as if God speaks to me in whispers. Anyone ever experience that? It's like he gives me these little tidbits, and I'm, I'm trying to piece it all together like a puzzle to try to figure it all out. Well, well, is that your voice, God? Are you speaking to me here? Did you ask me to go left? Should I go right? Okay, go right. Yeah, okay. It's so hard to figure out. But if I sin, my conscience that God has wired comes at me like an alarm. I know when I've done something I shouldn't have done. And not only does the conscience come at you like an alarm, but the conscience again comes back and tells you that there's a penalty for what you did and it needs to be paid. It needs to be paid. And as soon as that happens, our overactive imagination as well as the enemy with all his lies begins to step in. And he begins to accuse, and we try to figure out what the payment is. And we think in our minds, it must be a trade. This is where we naturally go, right? We say things like, well, I guess I'm going to pay for that sin with some promise that God had given me that now he's not going to fulfill on my life. He takes that back as a payment for what I did wrong. Maybe he's not going to fix my marriage the way he said he was going to. I remember I got a promise from God. It happened five years ago. It came into my heart. He gave me a word from Scripture. But now because I've sinned, now because I've done this, that's lost. That's been taken off the table. There's a trade. There's a payment that needs to be made. How many parents have ever felt, well, maybe it was the promise that, that he said he'd save my kids? 
I've gone year after year believing and trusting, but, but I keep failing in this one area, and I keep falling again and again, and, and there must be a trade. Maybe God is going to take away the salvation of my children. Maybe he's going to take away a move of his spirit in my kid's life. Maybe it's the anointing I used to operate under. Oh, man, do I struggle with this one. I used to sit down with people from coffee, and it was like God would just flow through me, flow through me. I'd watch him as he would touch people's lives and their eyes would open. They would be free just from the things that he would share through my heart, through the anointing that he gave me. But I haven't seen that. That's gone missing. And I wonder, I wonder if it's because of my sin. My conscience says there's a penalty that needs to be paid. And I wonder if this is the trade. I lost the anointing. It's gone. I wonder if it's the calling on my life. I had a calling in ministry, and I really failed. I really failed. And yeah, there's consequences I have to walk through, and there's restoration that has to happen. But maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe after all my repentance and my groveling and my crying and my weeping and my asking for grace and asking for mercies and asking God to cleanse me, maybe, maybe the calling has been taken, and maybe now God only has plan B. Maybe he only has plan C for my life. Plan A is gone. And then at that moment, we, we feel defeated. We feel like junk, don't we? And then as soon as we feel terrible, as soon as we're that defeated, the whole cycle starts again. We fall into another sin or the same sin that we just promised we were not going to do, that we just went through the cycle feeling so terrible about that we said that will never happen again. We fall into it again. Right? And our conscience comes and tells us not only have you sinned, but there's a penalty that needs to be paid for that sin. Then our imagination and the enemy begins to sweep in and he begins to try to tell us what the penalty, what the payment's going to be, what type of trade we're going to have to make with God. And it goes around and around and around and around and around till you start coming to church and your love and your zeal and your passion for God has been utterly and completely snuffed out. You still sit in the seats. You'll still participate. When Pastor Michael gets up, says we need to be a people who practice the presence of God. We need a people that need to learn how to minister to him. You'd say, I can't anymore because everything inside of me is dead from this cycle, Pastor Michael, that you just described. I can't be free to be able to worship him. I can't be free to begin to thank him. I'm always worried about what it is that I've lost. I'm worried about what the penalty was that I've had to make a trade for. Because of my sin. Our conscience condemns us at every point when we break God's law. And the conscience knows nothing about forgiveness. Nothing. If you were to sit down with your conscience today and you're going to have a meal and talk with it. And you said, tell me about forgiveness. Do you know what your conscience would say? That's not my job. That's not my department. God didn't set me up that way. I'm only supposed to do one thing and one thing only. I'm to point out your sin, and I am to condemn for it. I am to tell you that it needs to be paid for in full. That is all that I am called to do. So here is my question in my prayer time. What's the answer? How do 
I finally walk in God's forgiveness when I repent of my sins, when I confess them, when there's a godly sorrow? How do I finally leave my prayer time with my head held high with utter and absolute confidence, not any doubt that God is as much with me today as he was the day I got saved? That every promise that he's given me is still yea and amen in the Bible. I'm not saying there's not consequence for sin. I'm not saying that there's places where we need to learn and grow. I'm not saying that. But even through that, God is as much for us as he was before the sin even happened. And God's plan and his purposes are really working together for the good. He's bringing us where he always called us to be, even maturing us through the process. How do I walk out and finally have a confidence like that, where I am that free, that when somebody gets up here and says, it's time to enter into the presence of God, I'm not sitting here just like this trying to get through the service, but my hands are held up and I can come before his throne and I can begin to worship and intercede and minister to his heart because I'm no longer stuck in the cycle we just spoke about. How do I get there? First John 2, 1 through 2. Let me show you something. It says this, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Circle that word advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of of the whole world. The Bible says we have an advocate in Christ. Now, what is an advocate? You read that language sometimes, and it's so easy just to breeze through it, but what is the Bible actually speaking about? Well, an advocate is somebody who literally comes into a court and stands on the behalf of somebody that's in trial. He comes into the court. We would call it a lawyer today. And an advocate, I want you to understand this, that they understand the rules of the court. They understand the rules of the law, and they are there specifically for the defendant. It's a friend of the defendant. And Jesus works as an advocate for us when we sin. He appears on our behalf, listen to this, in the two courtrooms of our life. Every time you sin, there are two courtrooms that you're going to be accused in. Number one is the courtroom in your own heart where your conscience is. And he's going to condemn you night and day. It's going to be there. You can't get away from that. But number two is you're going to be accused in the high courts of heaven, in the courtroom of heaven. Satan is actually going to go before the Father and he's going to accuse you. And the Bible says that Jesus comes as an advocate. He stands in both courtrooms and he comes on in on our behalf. He starts in our hearts. The Bible says that when the, our conscience won't let us go, when the conscience keeps us into a place of, of, of condemnation and feeling like we can never get beyond a sin, the Bible says that God, actually, Jesus, enters into our hearts. He's in us through the work of the Holy Spirit, and he begins to make intercession inside of our hearts. In fact, the Holy Spirit begins to make groanings inside of us. He even begins to cry out, Abba, Father, which is a witness to us that we still have a Father in heaven. In other words, the relationship, even through our own sin, has has not been broken. That God's blessing and his goodness and his grace is still there. The spirit of God begins to bring that groaning in each and every one of your heart to start to silence our conscience. In fact, let me show you something in Romans 15. If you just skip to Romans 15, all the way to Romans 15. It says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him 
so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans says, may God fill you with peace. How does he fill you with peace? He finally comes and he silences that conscience. He makes it clear to your heart that you can't be condemned anymore because your payment has finally been paid through the blood of Christ. It's a witness of the Spirit of God. And only the power of the Holy Ghost can actually do it. See, the problem in the church is we get into this place where our conscience just will not leave us alone, where we've asked for forgiveness of our sins, where we've repented of it, but it still holds a, a, a tie to us. We still feel guilty. We still feel shame. We still feel overwhelmed, and we can't get free. And instead of going to the Holy Spirit, instead of recognizing that it's his job, we try to fight our conscience by ourselves. We try to do it through positive thinking. We try to do it through coming into the church and learning more teaching, which isn't a bad thing. Teaching is good. But teaching alone still cannot set you free. It's got to be a supernatural work of the Holy Ghost. And what's happening in our churches today is because everybody feels so shame-ridden and so guilty because we have the internet. We have sins that weren't even invented 30 years ago that all of us seem to be falling into. There's so much covetousness that's out there. There's so much vile pornography and adultery. And we all deal with it every single day of our lives. Instead of coming into the house and being free of it, what we're doing is we're preaching and teaching always about our identity because we're thinking the teaching alone can set somebody free. And the teaching can't. And the pulpits have become very unbalanced in the word of God. It's all about God's grace. It's all about your identity in him. And, all, and those are good things. I don't put those things down. But no other pastor preaches about anything else. Because they're trying to get the people free of something that only the Holy Spirit can free them of. I don't put down that type of teaching. But it's become the mantra of our generation. And the reason being is because it's not really working. Because here's the thing. When you deal with your conscience, it isn't more teaching that's going to give you the free, although that's important. I'm not putting teaching down. It's you going to the Holy Spirit yourself and calling on the Holy Ghost. We don't pray to the Holy Spirit as a church anymore. We send them on the sidelines. We pray to Jesus. We pray to Father. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is the one that's been left here to get you through your struggles. The Holy Spirit is your counselor. He is the one. And we need to learn to start praying to the Holy Ghost. We need to come and say, Holy Spirit, I can't get past this. I know that I'm forgiven up here, but in my heart, I can't let it go. And I need you to finally silence my conscience. I need you to tell it the war is over. The debt has been paid. I need you to do something in me that I don't even understand how you're going to do it, but you would begin to set me free. You need to start calling on the Holy Spirit, saying, you're the one. Galatians 4, Romans 8. Romans 15, you're the one that's supposed to come with power and bring me peace. But Jesus also appears on our behalf as an advocate in the courts of heaven. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12 and let's close this. 12:10. Let me give one more point and then close. And it says this in the NIV. Then I, ha I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brethren and sister, who accuses them before our God day and night, 
has been hurled down. That's awesome, but it's scary at the same time. And let me explain to you why. Because the Bible says that Satan is literally up in the high courts of heaven accusing you and me day and night. That's crazy. And I was thinking to myself as I'm reading this and I'm going through it, I'm saying, why in the world would God put up with that? I mean, we're all his children. If I had somebody come over to my house and they came into my house and all they were doing is accusing my kids, if you came to my house later and you told me everything they were doing wrong, how bad they were, how bad I was as a parent, how bad I, listen to me, I'd throw you out of my house. I'm a pastor, but I would just shove you out the door saying, I don't want to hear that. That's my child. That's my kid. And yet God permits the enemy to be able to come into his own courts and accuse us. The Bible says, not just for an hour, not just for a few minutes, accuse us day and night. And I'm thinking in my mind, why would God do that? That's crazy to me. And suddenly I began to re realize the reason that God allows it, and I want you to hear this, is because Satan actually has a case. He's not making up Trump charges. He's not looking at them and saying, well, did you see what he did or you see what he did? No, he's not doing it. He actually, he's bringing real sin. He's bringing real stuff. He's saying, no, 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 they actually did this. That pastor that you know, Michael, the one that gets up there every single week, no, 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 he lost it with his wife. He got angry with his kids. He lost his pay. He did these things. He's bringing an actual case. And because the courts of heaven are founded on justice, and this is the high courts of heaven, God has to actually listen to what he has to say because it's the truth. It's not a lie. And I always had this type of a, a thought, I had this type of vision, this imagination, and just kind of go with me here, that every time Satan kind of comes into the high courts of heaven and he brings a case before me where he's accusing me, I would start thinking about the work of Jesus and how it kind of played out in the heavenly courts. And this is what I used to think. I used to think Jesus would kind of like stroll on in there in his glorified body. He would kind of come into the courts and then he would like approach the bench because it was his father and kind of put, put his, his elbows up on the bench and kind of sit there with his, his beautiful eyes and look into his father's face. And then what he would do is he would begin to plead for mercy. That's what he would begin to do. Plead for mercy for me. He would say, Father, listen. Satan's not wrong. Michael's got a lot of issues and there's a lot of things going on in his life. But you know him. You know how much he wants to serve you. You, you know how much he prays. Yeah, he did it, but he's promised not to do it again. He got on his knees and he groveled. He said he came to an altar in front of everybody at the church. And his church attendance, it's good. He's there every single Sunday. And even when he's not preaching, he's on the front row taking notes. I mean, he's going through all that. Would you let this, would you show mercy? Would you forgive it? Would you give him grace? I mean, if that doesn't work, what about the fact that, you know, I kind of went down to the earth and all the stuff I did down there. And I died on a cross. I mean, come on, give him, just, just budge an inch. And then I would kind of see the father kind of look at you and say, okay, okay, I'll let him go again. I'll let him go. And every time I sinned, I got this type of picture in my mind, right? This is how I kind of saw it all playing out in the high courts of heaven. And as I was reading this and I was praying and I was studying, I began to realize that Jesus isn't up there pleading for mercy. That's where we're off. See, see, Jesus isn't there trying to manipulate God the judge emotionally. He's not trying to manipulate some jury of angels. Jesus actually has his own case. And he's not pleading for mercy because if he's pleading for mercy, it meant that he already lost the case. See, Jesus isn't at the bench saying, show mercy. You want to know what Jesus is at the bench doing? He's saying this, I'm demanding justice. 
I'm demanding justice. He's going before the Father and he's saying, it's true. He did sin. He did fail. But he's repented. He's asked for forgiveness. And I already paid the debt, the penalty for what he did. And listen to me, because you're just, you can't exact two payments for the same debts. You can only take one payment, otherwise you're not just. So, Father, I'm not here pleading for mercy. I am demanding absolute justice from the courts. Jesus is saying there's no trade to be made. There's no taking the anointing away, the calling away, because it's something he did. The payment has already fully been exhausted, and I am here as the payment. See, 1 John 1, 8 through 9, let me show you something that I saw this last week. Blew my mind away when I saw it as I was studying for this. Put it up, 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we claim to be about sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, verse 9, watch this. If we confess our sins, we, we all pray this prayer, right? We all talk this. He's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know what struck me about this scripture as I was reading this? It doesn't say faithful and merciful. It doesn't say, hey, if I confess my sins, God will be merciful and he will forgive me of all my unrighteousness. That's not what it says. He says he will be faithful and what else? He will be just. See, when you get that paradigm shift that the high courts of heaven, listen to me, are not founded on mercy but founded on justice, it changes your whole view of your forgiveness. It changes your view of the power of what Jesus actually did. Yes, when Jesus came down, it was, it was because of mercy. It came out of the heart of God because of mercy. But ultimately, the courts of heaven were founded on justice. Jesus paid the debt. You can't exact two payments for the same debts. And when you start to see that, when you grasp it, that there's no mercy in the sense of Jesus groveling at the throne room and saying, God, please do something. But God, Jesus is there saying, no, 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 this is justice. The forgiveness is what is 100% and absolutely right. And God can never do anything against what is right. It, it changes how you walk. It changes your confidence and your faith in what Jesus has actually done. See, as I took a spiritual inventory of all the sermons that came up in this last year, and I began to realize, man, the Holy Spirit is calling us to some pretty deep places with the Lord. He's not playing around. I began to realize we're never going to be able to go there as a church until, number one, we've dealt with the inner court in our hearts, our conscience. The power of the Holy Spirit has to silence our conscience. And number two, we can see how the high courts of heaven really work that they are founded on justice, that our forgiveness is just and it is right. Even though we don't feel like that sometimes because our own conscience tells us it's not, but that is the utter and absolute truth. And only when we receive that and we start walking in the joy of God's forgiveness can we begin to minister to him the way he's actually calling us to. Stand with me, Springs Church, just stand. I want to pray 
And I want to call on the Holy Spirit this morning and ask for the Holy Spirit to come and do a supernatural miracle in our house. I want to pray for people in this room who feel like they have like a black dot on their past with the Lord. You've done something and you can't get beyond it. Even though you've asked for forgiveness and you've repented of it, you cannot fully receive God's forgiveness and your conscience will not let you go. And what I want to do is I want to pray that the Holy Spirit today would begin to break that off of you. He would silence your conscience and give you a right view of your forgiveness from the perspective of the heavenly courts. Let me ask something honestly and, and just be very blunt and straightforward. Who in this room honestly can say, I, I struggle with God's forgiveness. I, there's something in my life that I feel like is just holding me back. There's a failure here, and I feel like I've had to make a trade. Like God has to take something from me to be able to make payment, and my conscience will not let it go. And if that's you this morning, can I just ask, if you feel comfortable, would you come down to the front? I want to pray for you. And there's no shame in this. This message was birthed out of what I was struggling with in my own heart. I just want to lift you guys up. Don't be ashamed. You just come up. I want to pray for you. And what I want you to do is if you just lift your hands, it's just an act of surrender to God, just an act of surrender. And those that are in the seats, I want you to begin to pray over those that are at this altar right now. You just lift your hands before the Lord. And I want you to call on the Holy Spirit. I want you to say, Holy Spirit, I need power now. Power to set my conscience free. I need power to silence it. Father, I lift up every person that's up at this altar, every person that's struggling with forgiveness. God, I struggle with it sometimes. I, I have a bad week or I have a bad month or I feel like I'm in a desert time with you and the first place that my mind goes is I must be grieving God. I must be making God angry. I must be doing something and I have such a hard time receiving your forgiveness, walking in the joy Walking in the truth that it's just, that it's right, that it's not just something you do out of pity, but it's done right in the high courts of heaven. And Lord, I pray for everybody at this altar, because I know what it feels like, that this morning, through the work of the Holy Spirit, can't be done through teaching. My teaching was terrible today, God. I've had a hard time getting this word out. God, but that doesn't matter. I don't want to hear people come up to me and say it wasn't bad. I don't want to hear any of it. That doesn't matter. The issue isn't the teaching. The issue is the work of the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God isn't moving in the teaching, it's worthless. It's head knowledge. It's, it's nothing. It cannot produce life. And God, I am asking, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to every person that's up at this altar. And Holy Spirit, you would begin to set them free. This is your job. You're the advocate. You're the one that comes to our hearts. You're the one that stands in the gap on our behalf. You're the one. We are not our own advocates. We stand in the court. We don't know how to plead. We don't know how to find our way out. We don't know how, to, how the law fully works and how the court systems are supposed to happen. You know. You know. And I pray now you would alleviate every conscience that's in this place that has truly asked for forgiveness. You would alleviate it in the name of Jesus Christ. And you would begin to bring freedom, freedom into their hearts and into their relationship with God. They leave this place feeling like, like I'm floating on air, like this is a new start with me, with the things of the Lord.
They'd leave this place to be able to worship like they've never worshiped before. They'd be able to give thanksgiving like they've never been able to give thanksgiving before. They'd be able to exercise faith like they've never exercised faith before. Because you would set them free, Lord. God, I wish this could be done just through memorization or whatever, but it has to be a supernatural work of the Holy Ghost. And we come in utter dependency on you. Lord, I said it in the first service. The conscience is like a centurion. It's like a soldier in an army that's been set at a post by his higher command. And he's standing there and he's guarding the post and he won't let it go. And everybody's saying, let it go, let it go. And he says, no. And finally, finally, the commander of the army comes and says, the war, the war has been won. It's done. You can leave the post now. It's done. But he can't leave until the commander comes and he says, it doesn't matter how many soldiers say it. It doesn't matter how many. It doesn't matter. It's got to be the commander. He says, I can't leave until the one that has set me as guard finally comes and relieves me of my duty. And Holy Spirit, you are the commander of that army now. And I pray that you would release people's conscience, that the centurion would finally let go of it all and say, no, I'm done. I'm done. I don't need to point this out anymore. I don't need to condemn over this anymore. I don't need to make clear that a penalty needs to be made for this anymore. I'm done. That the freedom would come, Lord God, and people would begin to walk in it underneath your power and your goodness, Lord. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.